Welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Nick Bratcher, for those who don't know, um, but I'm pretty sure I know everybody in this room, at least met them uh, once. Uh, I'm the campus minister for this group called RUF. I, I'd like to like issue a special welcome. If it's your like first or second time joining us, I want you to know that I'm really thankful that you're here, um, and it's really special that you would you know come and spend your Tuesday night with us. Um, as always, my number is posted behind me, uh, for you, yes, and this is uh, a Google number. I took a page out of Mike's old uh, handbook, uh, so I don't know who texted me to that number. So if you text that, it'll be anonymous because uh, I don't have any contacts there. So feel free to do that throughout the passage if you so wish. I'm not going to say what the number is because I'm being recorded, and I don't want some random person on the internet uh, texting me. Last week, uh, okay, last week we discussed. The parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15, 1 through 7, we arrived at the conclusion that true acceptance comes from, uh, comes in the form of neither passing, you know, papering over like one another's sin, uh, nor is it uh, from like our own goodness, but rather it's, it's from being cared for by Jesus. That is where our acceptance comes from. Uh, he is our shepherd who rescues us like lost sheep. This week, though, uh, we're in another passage in Luke. We're going to stay in Luke, just so you know. Uh, we're examining the parable of the two builders from Luke 6, 46 through 49. And it's part of our series here that we're doing this semester called Parables, Simple Stories with Spiritual Significance. Uh, that's what a parable is. As, as you turn there or um, you look at the bulletin or you look at the thing on the screen behind me uh, where it's printed, uh, I want to give you some context for this parable our passage tonight is at the tail end of uh, something called the Sermon on the Plain that starts in Luke six seventeen. These are a series of teachings that Jesus does uh, that, that took place when Jesus was on a level place. And they're prompted by Jesus actually spending the night in prayer. Uh, he's uh, on a nearby mountain all night long praying to God, and then he wakes up, or doesn't wake up, he, the next morning, goes out and teaches the people these things. And most of these teachings have to do with, like, ethical implications. They're things that the people of God, if they're going to follow Jesus, they should be doing. And uh, he's instructing these listeners, you know, a great multitude to do things like this that you've probably heard, like loving your enemies, uh, to do things like he, he declares the poor uh, to be blessed, and, uh, and the weeping to be blessed. And he says, those who are laughing and who have money, who are rich, they are actually, uh, they are actually woeful. He pronounces woe to those people. And at the end of all this ethical instruction stands this parable. And it, and it really serves as a fitting conclusion. What's the, what's the motivation to follow through on all this stuff, right? The question you've got to ask yourself, if, as you read through this passage, if you were standing there that day, Jesus told you all this stuff that you need to do. And the real question at the end of it is, why? Like, why, why would I do that? Well, uh, why, would I give, like, why would I forgive my enemies? And why would I give my money to the poor? Uh, what's, what's, what's the point? Well, Jesus can demand this if he's God, right? Uh, this is all worth doing if we want to follow him. And to think back to our previous weeks, right? We said, um, you know, we can find our acceptance in Jesus. We he can be our shepherd. We are justified based on his life, death, and resurrection, not on our own, uh, our own works. If we, if we want to follow him, that'd be great. Um, and that's why Jesus, that's why like, he's telling these people these things. And it's also why he ends with this question, the one that we start with here in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord? 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord? That he's asking us the same question we have to us tonight. If we, if we want these things that we've been talking about, if we want Jesus in our lives, we've got to ask, our, we've got to ask this question of ourselves, the same one he asked them. Why do you call him Lord, Lord? Is he your Lord, Lord? Is Jesus uh, the king over all of your life? Do you submit to him in every area, patterning your life after him uh, in pursuit of him? Uh, the reality is like what Jesus is implying by even like asking this question is essentially that uh, it is possible to have other lords. In fact, the parable that follows, he's going to say that like it's impossible to not have a lord, right? That it's that, it, that everybody has a foundation, that everybody has to have something that they worship. Uh, whether you think religion is like super important to you or not, uh, because you've been made by a God who wants you to worship him, who's designed you to worship, you'll worship something, uh, or someone. And if it's not God, you'll worship, maybe it's status or control, power, money, success, comfort. You can give your whole life in pursuit of these kinds of things. And, and the reality is we can't, we can't choose what life is going to throw at us any more than a house can determine its weather. But what Jesus is trying to get us to consider is what's going to be your foundation, right? You can't choose the weather. You know, you can't choose what life throws at you, but you can choose what you're going to build your life upon, what you're going to trust in, uh, what's going to, what you're going to pursue with all your heart, uh, all your days here on this earth. This reminds me of uh, Tom Brady. He did this interview for 60 Minutes uh, in 2007. He's the quarterback of the New England Patriots. If you don't know who Tom Brady is, he's like, the man. I mean, he's so, he's like ridiculously good looking and he's like the best football player that's ever lived. Uh, he has, now he has six Super Bowls. You, you might say like some other people are, but like he's, it's just a fact. He's better than everybody else. And so uh, what's, he also may have cheated more than anybody else, but that's beside the point. Um, you think he gets interviewed in 2017. He has three Super Bowls at this point. He's already bound for the Hall of Fame. No matter what he does at this point, he's going to be, he's at the top of his career. Um, he's only going to get better from there. And uh, this guy who's interviewing him uh, is on 60 Minutes, and he asks Tom Brady, you know, about his success. And he's like, I'm sure this is, you know, you're at the pinnacle. What is it like to be, you know, the best? What is it like to achieve the most in your profession, to be at the top? And you would have thought that Tom Brady would say, like, feels amazing. I feel, like, so satisfied. I put in so much work, and I deserve everything that I'm getting now. Um, but that's not what he says. He's not satisfied. Instead, this is what Tom says. This is what Tom Brady says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Tom Brady has oriented his entire life about, around being successful, around being the best uh, quarterback you can possibly be, and he's achieved this status. He is at the top of the NFL, and yet he's asking himself, this can't be all that is cracked up to be. The reality was that uh, all the success in the world wasn't enough to satisfy even Tom Brady, that it wasn't enough to bear the weight of his life. It's not something he could trust in because he knows that success is fleeting, one time he wins a Super Bowl, the next time he doesn't. One day he's going to have to retire, and then what? What is it going to be for him? 
He doesn't know, right? He's staring into the void of his future existence, and he's saying, like, this can't be all there is. It's only downhill from here. But that leads us to the question we're going to answer tonight. And it's the one that Jesus is, is asking of us as we read this passage, is what he's trying to teach us. Where can you place your trust? Where can you place your trust? That's a question we're all asking, right? We're all looking for something to trust in. What's going to be your foundation for life? Well, let's read this passage, uh, Luke 6, 46 through 49. Um, it reads like this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the, on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, um, these are kind of hard words to hear. Um, we admit that as we read this, maybe we even feel some indignation or um, some tiredness, maybe even um, some self-loathing. Uh, some of us, we're all going to have different reactions, but uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us quiet those for a moment to hear what you're actually trying to tell us from this passage um, and draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, all right, so let's get to tonight's big question. Where can you place your trust? Where can you place your trust? Well, uh, let's look at the first parable, or, or in a moment, we're going to look at the first parable, but for right now, I'm going to start with the second, because it's actually two different stories, right? He tells one story about a man who builds a house on a foundation, and a different story, a second parable about a man who uh, builds it um, without a foundation. Uh, Jesus says, it begins in verse 49, Jesus says that he tells this simple story to illustrate what it's like for someone who hears his words and does not do them. The, the parable is about anyone who ultimately rejects Jesus as Lord. Uh, this profile includes uh, maybe the more obvious offenders, like people of other faiths and uh, religions, or people who don't have any faith in anything at all. Uh, that's probably obvious, but um, it's also probably very offensive to our modern ears. Um, we like, like a very popular belief right now is that all roads lead to God. That like, if you're just searching after him, God is very satisfied. Just if any, if you believe anything, just any sort of faith in any God or any religion, like that's, like that's good enough. Um, and as offensive as it may be, and, and that might be true of some religions, but if we're going to take Jesus at his word here, coming to him, hearing his words and doing them, alone is the, that's the only, like trusting in him alone is the only way to life. That's what he's claiming. Uh, it's the only way to withstand the storm of life and death. But this parable also applies to a, a, a less obvious offender, uh, a person who claims to be a Christian, but still does not do what Jesus uh, says, right? Who does not actually allow Jesus complete and total reign over their life. Uh, that's the line in the sand that Jesus draws, right? He, either he is your true king and he requires your total and complete allegiance or he's nothing to you. You are a house without a foundation. That's, that's what he, he says. Uh, all people are actually in one of those two categories. Uh, there's two types of people and, and Jesus, as uncomfortable as we might be, doesn't give us a third. Doesn't give us a third option for people who you know, mostly follow him 
but have decided that there are certain non-negotiables uh, about their life that, that remain in their own control. Um, he actually demands to be the Lord of how you drink, how you sleep, how you think, how you spend your money, how you date, how you study. Everything about your life is, his, is under his control. Um, to quote Abraham Kuyper, who is a Dutch theologian and also the prime minister of the Netherlands at one point, uh, he says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Jesus Christ does not, who is, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Um, how, how can someone make such a claim? Why, why does Jesus demand so much? Why does, he, why does he point at everything in life and say, that's mine, I decide about that? Well, as the parable goes, a man does decide to forego a foundation, right? Uh, he builds his house upon ground just as it stood. I, I, now, I don't claim to know a lot about like building buildings, but I do know that part of what you need to do to start to build a building is that you excavate the earth uh, that you want to build upon and then you put a solid foundation underneath uh, where the excavation was. If you just leave, um, you know, if you just leave regular old earth where you're going to put something heavy on, what ends up happening is over time, water runs over that spot and it slowly erodes away and it becomes mud and goes somewhere else and your house goes with it. That's the idea. If there's a big storm. Uh, and this, Jesus says, this is what happens to people who hear his words but don't do them. Uh, it's like having a house without a foundation that can get swept away in any storm. Just like that, just like, you can get, just like a house can get swept away in a storm, so also a life built on misplaced trust, a rejection of Jesus' lordship and the demands he puts on us, leaves our lives in ruins when the trials of life comes. Why? Why, would, why can't I you know, go my own way? Why can't I give Jesus some things and not other things? Why can't I just live the way that I want? And who's to say that my house is going to come tumbling down? I feel pretty good, right? A lot of, a lot of people would say that. Um, maybe you're a Christian. You're like, I'm mostly, I'm mostly with Jesus, but in a few things I'm not. Why, why can't I be that way? Well, I've already mentioned that Tom Brady, that how it worked out for Tom Brady to uh, give his life over to success. But success is not the only thing that we can give our lives over to, is it? Um, this is true in other ways. And, and this is kind of a, like I'll admit, this is kind of a funny example, but it is true. I pointed something true. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have seen the TV show The Office. I love this show. Uh, but when the boss, Michael Scott, decides he's going to leave Dunder Mifflin, leave like, the, the company that he's with, uh, they interview like, a bunch of different bosses. And one of them is played by Will Ferrell, who uh, is this guy named D'Angelo Vickers, uh, and he comes in and he immediately identifies this one other character named Andy as like the funny guy in the office. And he just, and, and the, the problem was, it's not that he actually thinks Andy is funny. It's that he only laughs at Andy when he like does something to mutilate himself, right? Like it, Andy will crack a joke and he'll just stand there and just stare at him. Like that's not funny. And then as soon as Andy like hits himself or like trips over something, D'Angelo Flickers like just busts out laughing. Uh, and at one point, um, this, they're in the break room, and D'Angelo is like, man, I'm having a, bad, I'm having a rough day. Make me laugh, funny guy. And Andy per, like, proceeds to put his hand in a toaster, uh, pours cheese puffs all over himself, and then he pours hot coffee down his pants. 
And of course, this makes D'Angelo like erupt in laughter, and he's like, "You're a funny guy," but he has like third-degree burns uh, down his pants. And um, the point of this is is that when he sets his affections on having the approval of his boss, right? He'll do whatever he has to do to get that. And so, you know, he had it with Michael, but then the storm of life comes, right? His boss leaves, and now he's got to have the approval of the new boss. And what's that going to cost him? Whatever it costs, even his own dignity. And this, this really brings us to our first answer to our question, where can you place your trust? This is our first answer tonight. You can place it outside of Jesus, but it has disastrous consequences, just like a house without a foundation. I understand The Office is a funny TV show, but that scene is partly funny because we really do know what it's like to be Andy, to want someone's approval, to, to work for it. And we know people who do this. Um, you might be one of them, that you, uh, you spend all of your time and all of your life patting your resume, buttering up the right people. Maybe you are your favorite teacher's pet. You're like some professor here. And this is good, by the way. You should like pursue your professors and love them. But maybe you're like just friends with some professor so that they, you can get their connections that they have, right? And you spend all of your time and all of your effort thinking about how you could worm your way into a certain company or a certain internship. And that's the way your whole life is oriented. But what happens when that internship disappears or you lose the favor of that professor or any of those other things um, approval is not a good foundation um, seeking it. And when we make our lives about that, we're getting the right grades, being in the right social circles, the right parties, dating the right boy or girl, um, any of those things, we, we end up building a false foundation. And, and no lip service that, like, that I'm a Christian or I love Jesus is going to save you from that false foundation. What you really love what you really love in those things is yourself. You serve yourself. And when the life of storms hit and they, and they attack you and they say they start to pull at the things that you treasure and the things you've built your trust and your identity around, what happens? Where do you turn? Um, they, they will test us. Uh, and the reality is um, when Jesus tells us that like, there's no other way, um, as offensive as that might seem to us, he's actually offering us a grace. He's being kind to us and telling us the truth because the truth is like all that other stuff, all that stuff that we think is going to satisfy us won't. Um, they're illusions and they can't really deliver on what they promise. So what would it look like to love the real thing then, right? If that's the wrong thing, if, if it's, if it's got to be Jesus, it can't be anything else. What does it look like to love him, uh, to place our trust in Jesus? Well, look with me at verse 47. I don't know if it's still up. Look with me at verse 47. Jesus identifies the other way to live. Come to him, hear his words, do them. Uh, this person is one who loves Jesus, uh, whose whole allegiance is singularly given to Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, God alone, through his word, determines what's right and what's wrong, what to be, what's to be pursued and what's to be avoided, um, how to live, how to die. But maybe most importantly, this person comes to Jesus, right? Don't miss, don't miss this word that he comes to Jesus. This is not just blind legalism. It's not following a rule book. Um, it's, it, it, you know, that's called God's word. That's not what makes someone's life stormproof. Uh, we've talked about uh, before about the reality that we're not accepted based on what God, um, based on what we do. God doesn't accept us based on like our performance, right? We, we believe that those are the the other uh, passages that we've read have, have said that it's not just blind legalism. 
Uh, no, this man has come to Jesus. Not a value system. It's not a, it's not a self-help strategy. It's not a system of rules. None of those things would, would be any better than a false foundation. Instead, this is a relationship, right? You come to Jesus to have a relationship with him. And like all relationships, for it to mean anything, there's got to be some level of commitment, right? For Maddie and I to be married, there has to be some amount of commitment. That's what constitutes the fact that we're married. Um, if I was like, I married you today, but tomorrow, maybe, you know, who, we'll see. Like, that's not really marriage at all. That's not really a friendship at all either, right? Thinking about you guys with your friends. If you told one of your friends, hey, I really love you, I respect you, I'm so thankful for, that you're in my life, but tomorrow we'll see. Your friend would be like, what kind of friend are you? You're not a friend at all, right? Um, and the, so the question becomes, like, will we come to him, right? Will we have this commitment? Will we submit our lives to this Jesus person? Um, and, and why would we? Why would we do that? Well, for starters, this is the same Jesus that we've heard about. <laughs> like these past few weeks, he is a shepherd who will relentlessly, will relentlessly pursue you um, despite whatever you get yourself into, uh, despite your best attempts to be lost. He is someone that you can trust to help you like form your identity so that it doesn't have to be in like what others think of you or how you think of other people. Um, instead, um, he tells you that you're really secure so that you can love other people like the Good Samaritan, that you can become a neighbor. Most importantly, Jesus has also demonstrated his commitment to us in his uh, life, death, and resurrection, right? In his work on the cross. Um, He proved that he's the conqueror of death. Who wouldn't want to follow a God who loves them so much that he would pay the ultimate price to have a relationship with them? That's what Jesus has done for you. Um, he has, he's paid it all so that he could have and secure a relationship with you. But also consider this parable. Let's pull it up one more time. Also consider this parable. Uh, consider what Jesus says about the person who, um, who does what he says in verse 48. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. How can this be? How does having real faith in Jesus anchor us to a solid foundation despite, despite life's storms? Well, okay, so if your identity is in Christ, right? If you really, really get all of your identity from the fact that Jesus loves you, that God, um, no matter what you do, is going to be committed to you, then no matter what happens in life, that's the most defining thing about you. That's the truest thing about you. It's truer than what a boss thinks, Right? Um, this would have helped Andy in that situation. He could have said, look, maybe I'm not the funny man. That doesn't matter to me. My allegiance is to Christ, right? Um, obviously, the office isn't going to like make room for Andy to have a sudden conversion, but it could have helped um, in that like fictional scenario, but also it helps in real-world scenarios, right? Um, when you go through a breakup, when uh, you lose the favor of your professor, you get a bad grade, like all of these things, like they don't say who you really are. Ultimately, that, is, that, that right is reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. And that means that you become unshakable, right? This brings us to um, our second and ultimate answer to our question, where can you place your trust? Well, you can place it, you can place it in Jesus. You can place it in Jesus. He, he can make you unshakable. Um, but, I, you know, you probably know this. This is a, like a little bit of a scary venture, isn't it? Like really deep down, because to give up control of our lives um, 
when you when you trust Jesus like that, um, what's you don't really know how God's gonna what God's gonna ask of you, right? If you come to Him, you don't really know what it means uh, to completely yield to His authority because if He's saying He has authority over your life, you don't know what He's gonna call you to do, um, and that that's scary. You don't know what you'll have to give up. You don't know what parts of yourself God might ask you to change. Uh, things that you really like about your life that God might say, this isn't for you. Um, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, you know, a major, a, you know, a, a career. What is it? I don't know. Um, could be good things, could be bad things. There's this scene, um, uh, I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, and there's this scene uh, in the silver chair with this uh, woman, this little girl, who's named Jill Pohl. And uh, she's been lost in this forest for hours. She's getting very hungry and very thirsty. She's been out there without water or food. And suddenly she hears like the rushing of a, of a stream. And so she starts following it, uh, hoping that she'll find water. And just as she finds the river, she like comes into a clearing and she sees the river. But there on the banks of the river is a huge lion named Aslan right? Uh, some of you guys might be familiar with Aslan the lion, but she notices that it's this big, scary looking, huge, intimidating lion, like 10 times bigger than any lion anyone's ever seen. And, uh, this is the interaction that happens. The lion looks at her and he says, are you not thirsty? Uh, and Jill says, I am dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind just like maybe uh, just going away for a bit while I do, said Jill. This is the scene that happens. The, the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Uh, the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her insane. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. Lion looks at her and he says, I make no such promise. Well, Jill's very thirsty still, and so she says to him, you know, she's trying to like make sure she's okay. She says, well, do you eat girls? Maybe you don't eat girls. And he, the lion looks at her and he says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and entire realms he didn't say it as if this is what uh lewis writes he didn't say it as if he was boasting nor as if he were sorry nor as if he were angry he just kind of says it uh and then jill says well then i i daren't come and drink and this lion says then you'll die of thirst oh dear said jill another step nearer i suppose She's drawing a little bit near, a little closer, a little closer, closer, and then she finally just says, I suppose I really, I must go look for another stream uh, then. I can't, I can't come here. And then the line says this, there is no other stream. This is the scary part of this whole thing, isn't it? Like, this is the, like what Jesus is saying, if we're really honest with ourselves about this whole parable, the scariest part of it is God is like this lion. He's not tame. If you come to him, if you trust him, if you really, really give your life to him, you don't know what he'll do to you. Uh, but you know this, the water you need, the foundation you're supposed to trust in, 
that will actually like help you withstand anything that life throws at you, it's only going to be found in him. It's only going to be found in his love for you. This is the, this is the paradox of the Christian life, right? You need rescuing. You, you need it. <laughs> but you never know where God's going to lead you when he comes to find you. You never know what he's going to do with you. If he's a good shepherd and you are lost, like you don't know where he's going to take you when he picks you up and put, puts you on his back. Um, what is it? Uh, what's it going to cost you? Uh, the reality is, I don't know. I don't know because it's different for all of us where God might lead us uh, when we give our whole lives to him. I don't know what God would ask of you if you truly trust him. Um, and whether you've been a Christian your whole life or you're on the fence, um, we're all facing this reality. What is God going to do if I come to this stream, right? Uh, what is it for you that you're still holding out on? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. What's that part of you that you have locked away that you say, look, you can change all these things about me. I'll do this. I'll do that. Um, I'm good with God being this way. But what's the part of you that ultimately you say, like, deep down, you can't have this. You can't tell me what to do in this, in this area of my life. Um, What's that thing that you're, that, you know, maybe it's that persistent sin that you keep coming back to over and over again and you won't quit it because you can't. It's too precious to you. That's the thing that matters more to you than anything. Uh, what, what, do you, what do we do with that? Um, if you want to come to Jesus, the reality is that nothing is off the table. Um, but here's the good news. But when, but when nothing is off the table, everything is in Jesus' hands. And friends, there's no one who's more trustworthy with your life. He will love you. He will see you through it. Um, he's committed his, his actual life to fighting for you, to knowing you, to loving you, to working for your good. So um, maybe at this point, as we wind down, maybe you're asking like, but man, this would be so much easier if God didn't create us like this, right? If God didn't make us this way. It seems kind of cruel that God would be like kind of narrow, that he would demand and insist upon us like acting in his way. Uh, why does God put these limits on us? Why does he expect us to do everything his way? Why can't I, why can't I do it the way I want? This would, you might even say, I would be happier if you would let me do the things that I want to do. The best answer I can give is that really all love has, like, has limits put on it, right? Um, I once heard a story uh, of... Uh, on the Moth, which is like a like a storytelling radio hour on NPR, it comes on NPR sometimes. Um, it was about a man named Greg. Uh, as Greg describes it, his his parents divorced when he was 12 years old, and essentially left him to like fend for himself. I mean, they they gave him like a debit card. They were like pretty wealthy, so they gave him a debit card and were like, you know, buy what you need, do what you need to do. But they they basically gave him like little to no parenting. Um, he describes at one point his mom was working multiple jobs to support their family um, uh, because her, like, to support herself because her, the dad um, kind of like moved off and didn't really um, support her. He was willing to like give the kid this debit card, but his mom was spending for herself. So she's working multiple jobs to support the family. She's dating regularly. She doesn't have a lot of time for him. And his dad, so desperate to win Greg's affection, um, actually ends up bringing him to a few strip clubs and like bars and things. This kid's 12. Um, and naturally, uh, like when Greg is deciding for himself what he wants to do with his life at 12 years old, he ends up not, not going to school a lot. He sleeps in basically every day until noon. If he ever makes it to, to school at all, um, it's very late. 
And he basically eats nothing but pizza and hamburgers, like, every day. And he, drink, he describes the fact that um, at one point he would drink about three liters of soda every single day. That was his life um, at 12 years old. Um, and he, he tells the story, he says, he even actually ended up feeling sorry for all these other kids. Uh, he would say um, things like, man, I don't know why you put up with your parents telling you, like, where you got to be and what time you have to be home, um, asking you, where, like, who you're going to be hanging out with and all this stuff. He felt sorry for these kids. But then uh, he turns 14 and he ends up going to uh, high school, at a different high school, and he made good friends with this kid that lives down the street from him. Uh, and one night, um, he stays over at this friend's house and he sees how this family lives. Um, they ate a normal meal, right, like with vegetables. And uh, he comes home and, he, and the dad says, uh, that family says, you have to do your homework before we do anything else. But then once he gets done with his homework, they play video games for like two hours. Like he and his dad are all playing video games together. Um, and then uh, when he gets done, uh, at like 9.45, his dad says, all right, guys, 15 minutes, and then it's time for lights out. Um, all of Greg's, uh, and like, you know, he's been having such a good time. He like is overcome with emotion, and it surprises him. Like his eyes start filling with tears. So he runs to the bathroom, and when he gets to the bathroom, he realizes that like the dad has already put out like a toothbrush and toothpaste for Greg, and this just completely sends him over the edge. Like he just starts sobbing and he's crying, and he comes back in the room, like runs back in his room, and he just says like, "Is it like?" do your parents act like this all the time? Uh, friend says, like, yeah, I mean, this is pretty normal. And Greg asks, and, and your dad, he, like, tells you to go to bed, like, every night. Y- yes, that's how, my, like, that's how all families are, I thought. And then he hears this. Um, Greg tells, like, finds himself asking the question, can I, like, stay over again, like, tomorrow? <laughs> And his friend says, uh, well, actually, you know, my parents told me that, like, you can stay over, like, whenever you want. And so Greg did. Greg stayed the next three years at this kid's house, at his friend's house, uh, and finished out high school there, um, and now considers this family to be his, like, real family. Um, at the end of the story, Greg, like, fighting through some tears, uh, says, as I grew older, I realized that rules, routine, structure, um, it was all love. There was love in it. Um, these parents loved him enough to give him limits, and it melted him. It melted his heart. Uh, these rules were designed for Greg's good, and, and that's why he craved it. Uh, do you believe this about God? Do you, like, this thing, the things that you're thinking of, the things that you continue to turn to to satisfy you, to give you uh, your foundation, um, do you believe that, like, the rule that God has made, the, the thing that God's calling you away from, do you believe that, like, God's made it because he, he loves you, that he cares for you, like a father cares for his children? He's proven that he does, right? He's proven that he cares for you on the cross, that he loves you more than life itself. The question is, do you trust him? Let's pray. Uh,